I wonder whether any of you have a friend like my friend Jay. Uh, Krista and I were visiting our friends, Jay and Krista. They live in Huntsville. We were visiting them last summer and, and over at their place for dinner. And uh, uh, we pulled into the yard and Jay uh, greeted us at the door, you know, gave me a hug as friends do. And, and Jay says to me, listen, he says, uh, while you're here, he says, can you help me for a, a minute after dinner? I was like, yeah, totally, man, of course. Like, what's a friend going to do? Help a friend, right? You're feeding me a, a meal. Of course I'm going to help you for a minute after dinner, right? That's a no-brainer. But it, it turned out after dinner that uh, help me for a minute uh, may not have been the most accurate way to describe or to frame the request. So after dinner, he elbows me. He says, hey, let's, let's go outside. Let's get this thing done. And I'm like, yeah, totally, let's go. And uh, he says, on the way outside, he says, I've called my buddy. He's going to be here any minute. I'm like, oh, this is the help me for a minute kind of job that requires actually a whole other uh, buddy. Okay, so, this is, so as we get outside, I'm kind of like, so what, what is it that we're doing? And he just sort of points to the side. And I look, and there is a massive extension ladder, fully extended, leaning against the side of his three story house up against the the 12 by 12 peaked roof which for you non-framers non-roofers like me is like a 45 degree angle this peaked roof and he says well we're we're kind of going up there and I said really for what and he hands me a 12 pound sledgehammer and he says you're gonna need this because we just kind of have to take apart that chimney and that chimney so there I am climbing up this wobbly extension ladder carrying a 12-pound sledgehammer. I'm on vacation. I'm wearing shorts and like sandals and crawling up the side of this 12 by 12 peak roof. I throw myself over the top, you know, so I'm sitting on the top of the roof. And there I am swinging this 12-pound sledge with one hand trying to set these bricks free. And then as a brick pops loose, you know, you grab it. But you can't keep it on the roof. So you were throwing these bricks over the side of the, over the, side of the building. The whole time, you're kind of wobbling back and forth. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not afraid of heights. I'm just not. I am a tiny bit terrified of plunging three stories to my death. And the whole time, <laughs> the whole time I'm sitting on this roof, I literally am only having one thought. All I want is for somebody to climb up a ladder and offer me a harness with a rope and let me tie myself to something so that I don't plunge to my death, right? Beginning, middle, end, the only thing I care about. I want to tie myself off so I don't fall to my death. Because I feel like if I had a harness and if I was strapped down, if I was tied off to something, I'd be able to do the work that Jay needed me to do and I wouldn't think twice, wouldn't think twice about the fact that I was on the roof. Because being anchored like that would set me free to be able to do and to be and to live the way I needed to live in the moment. Even in the midst of that really scary situation. I saw it again, actually, uh, this past month. We took the kids on a cruise. We were sailing on a, on a cruise ship. And, and part of our ship, there was a trampoline that was set up on the, on the top deck of the ship. And um, how do you keep kids safe jumping on a trampoline on the top deck of the ship, right? You, not with the netting like you, people buy for these, uh, 
you know, trampolines that you jump on on the ground like some kind of sucker. No way, these are, this is like a trampoline on a cruise ship. And so what you have to do, there's this giant superstructure and the kids climb onto the trampoline, they put on this harness and they get strapped in with these bungee cords, right? Carabiners getting locked into place, whatever. And they're totally secured in place with these bungee cords. And then knowing that they've got these bungee cords, you should see these kids go bananas. They're leaping like, two times, three times as high as you normally could on a trampoline because you've got the bungee action going. But these kids are attempting double and triple flips like they're doing stuff you'd never do on a trampoline, even one with netting to keep you safe. No, no, they're doing stuff you would never try on the ground because they know they're anchored in place. Because they know they're absolutely and utterly secure being tied off with these bungee cords on the trampoline. That it was being anchored by the bungee cords that set them free to live in some kind of crazy, adventurous way that they would have never lived before. And this is the point of this series that we're calling Anchored. This is why we're doing this. Because we believe that in the life of faith, it is important at times to come back to the place where you just kind of re anchor yourself in the fundamental things that matter. Just sort of re-anchor yourself in the basic truths about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and then having been anchored in the fundamentals, in the core truths of what it means to follow Jesus, you can be set free to live a life of faith without fear. To live a life of faith that's filled with adventure and hope. And, and uh, because you know that you know that you're anchored, that you're secure, that you're safe in the way that you believe. And so this morning, we're starting this four-week series, and we're starting with the single most foundational thing, most foundational truth that you could start with in the Christian faith. We're actually starting in the very first sentence of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're starting the series in the beginning. That phrase, in the beginning, takes us actually all the way back, the story of God, all the way back to before the beginning. Back 13.8 billion years to the beginning. Back before the Big Bang that was the beginning. Where the story begins back behind the infinitely hot, infinitely dense singularity that scientists tell us exploded and became the everything that we see. The story of God, the story of who God is and what God is about begins before the beginning. It begins with the towering figure of the creator who stands behind everything that we see. It begins with the towering figure of a creator who becomes the ultimate reality of the universe. Who becomes or who is the most really real thing that exists. See, if there is a creator that stands behind the creation, if there is a beginning, if there's a creator who stands behind the beginning that has no beginning, who is the ultimate reality of the universe, then what is really real about my life and about my experience is not what I experience in life. Right? What is really real 
about life in this world, about good and evil, about pain and joy, what is really real about life is what is rooted in the reality of the creator. Because the story of the Bible and the story of Christian faith is that behind everything we see, there is a creator who created this world as a work of art. Like a, an artist would write a book or write a, and perform a song or to create a, a piece of visual art. A creator who, who created an artifact that in some way points us back to the artist that created it. To the intention and to the purpose behind it. An, a, a creator who creates something that itself is an invitation to engage with the artist. This past week in the English-speaking world, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare, which for those of you who hate reading Shakespeare, maybe celebrating his death isn't that far off a reality. Um, but think about Shakespeare. This is, a, this is a towering literary genius who wrote plays in which he demonstrated his understanding of the human spirit and of the human condition, who had such depth and keen insight into the human condition that his plays endure as literary artifacts in our culture, shaping our culture, shaping our understanding of humanity, even though they're basically no longer readable by normal people. And when you engage with the writings of Shakespeare, with this creation that Shakespeare has made, it is an invitation to engage with Shakespeare. It's a portal into his psyche. It's a portal into his spirit. It's a window into his soul as you, as you engage with the play. You're actually engaging as, with the playwright. Because the play itself is an invitation. It makes present to us the genius of the person of Shakespeare. And the scriptures tell us that that is exactly what creation does. In Psalm chapter uh, 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from that. Tell that to the birds outside my window at 4 a.m. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The, the psalmist says that the purpose of creation is to declare the glory of God. And that word declare is actually an accounting word in Hebrew. That actually, literally, at one level, what the text says is that creation is an accurate accounting. It is an accurate tallying or representation of the glory of God. An another way to translate that word is that creation is a written declaration of the glory of God. The word glory actually literally means weightiness, heaviness. It talks about significance and importance. It talks about this imposing presence of God. Over time, the word glory uh, begins to refer to the way God radiates the beauty of his goodness and love to his creatures. 
And what creation is, creation is the written declaration of this significance, this imposing figure, this radiating beauty of the goodness of God. It's an invitation for us to engage with God. In, in Acts chapter 17, it says this, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that we would seek him. This is why God did this, so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and even find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. The God who made the world, the God who gives life and breath and everything else to every single one of us, that God has determined the time and the place of your humanity. God has chosen for you this time in human history. God has chosen for you this place in the globe. And the reason that God has chosen for you this time and this place of humanity is for your humanity is so that you will seek him. Um, the, the word literally means to look for something, to go from place to place trying to find something. It speaks to the, the desire and the motivation of our hearts to actually know and encounter God. God chose your time in human history, the place on the globe where you would live out your human existence, hoping that it would inspire you to look for him in the creation in which God has placed you. And perhaps the text says to reach for him. Reach is a bit weak because I can reach for something and fall short. In the Greek, actually, the word reach talks about making contact with something. It talks about touching something. It talks about actually coming to know the nature of something by coming into contact with it. In effect, the word in Greek talks about what it means to truly grasp something. God has created the heavens and the earth in order that it would be a written declaration of his imposing presence, the presence of the artist that stands behind the artistic creation, that it would radiate the beauty of his goodness and love and inspire people to look for him in our experience of the world and to reach and to grasp a hold of him. It says to even find him, to encounter him, to come to know him. Some people, oh, the, I, the Irish Christian tradition has a great way to think about this, the Celtic Christians talk about thin places, that there are thin places in the world. And what they mean by thin places, I, I know we've talked about this once before, it was a while ago. What they mean by thin places, it, it's kind of rooted in this biblical idea that, that heaven and earth are two sides of the same reality, are two components of the one creation. That heaven, which is the domain in which God is, 
and earth, which is the domain in which we are. Those are not two realities that are separated by a gigantic gulf, by light years. Heaven is way up there and earth is way down here. That, that actually when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, uh, the Bible's not talking about two separate realities. What the Bible's saying is that God created the heavens and earth. The one reality that contains both heaven and earth. That the place of heaven where God is and the place called earth where we are, that those realities, as one theologian says, are interlocking and interwoven and overlapping so that there are, that everywhere we go in the world, we are moving about both in heaven and in earth, which is why Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God is not far from any one of us, that in him we move and have our being, that God is closer than the air that we breathe, that God is closer to us than the environment in which we move, that God is to be found in the sounds that we hear, that God can be seen in the sights that capture our gaze, that it is in God that we live and move and have our being, that that heaven and earth is the reality in which we live. But the, the thing is, the Celtic Christians talk about this, that the thing is that in some places or at some times, you know, there is a veil between heaven and earth that's, they're all the, that's why we can't see heaven. There is a veil that divides heaven and earth, and sometimes that veil is thick. It's like a hotel curtain. It's like blackout blinds. It's something that you draw closed, and you absolutely cannot see what is on the other side. In fact, the, the closing of it completely compartmentalizes what is on your side and what is on the other side. And sometimes, in some places, in some seasons of our lives, we live in this reality where heaven seems inaccessible to us, where the the veil is closed and it's thick, and we, like the hotel curtains, we are left plunged in darkness. But there are other times, there are other places the Celtic Christians say that there are thin places where the veil between heaven and earth is thin, it's sheer. And the light of the glory of the goodness and the love of God blaze into our reality, where heaven feels like it's leaking into our experience, where you could almost swear that if you squint just the right way, you could see the shape of the creator just on the other side of the curtain. Spaces that make you feel like heaven and earth have opened to each other and you experience, you feel the presence and the closeness of God. There are people who feel that in creation. Hiking in the woods, hiking in the mountains, canoeing in Algonquin. I I remember rock climbing with a friend of mine just north of Burlington uh, at the Buffalo Compound Park. And uh, he had gotten to the top of his rock climb. I remember this so clearly. He was at the top of his climb and he kind of turned and he looked over his shoulder. It was early in the morning and that you could see, it was a clear day and you could see that whole corner of the golden horseshoe and it was bathed in this, in this golden light of the sun just emerging in the morning and he just kind of blurted out, I don't know how anyone can say that there's not a God. The top of that climb had become a thin place where the, the beauty and the, of the goodness and love of God, the, the sense of the nearness of heaven was breaking through into his experience. Now, he didn't know the guy holding his rope at the bottom was an avowed atheist. Thin places aren't thin for everybody. 
Some people experience it in music. I, I heard a, a worship songwriter say once, I believe that God created music to connect our souls to heaven. And that happens for people. The music swells, whether it's Christian music or not. The music swells and, the, and it captures your soul and it carries you away and you begin to feel like you're in a thin place where God is near. Where you can, with your ears, you're seeking him and, and reaching for him and, and encountering him in the music. That for some, it, it can happen in community. Right? The Bible says that we're created in the image of God, that every human being you've ever met has the ability to reflect the likeness of God to you, that every relationship in which you, in which you engage can reflect uh, what it means to participate in the divine life to you. That's why dinner tables can become thin places. That's why delivery rooms are thin places because human beings are miraculous things that reflect the goodness and beauty and the glory of God. Creation is an invitation for us to seek, to look for God in the world, to discover his imposing presence standing behind the creation, to reach for him, to grasp for him in what we experience and encounter in the world, to run to him in music, in contemplation, in community, in, in service, in activism, in mercy, in study, in scripture, to, to find those thin places and discover the God who is there, who created the heavens and earth, and who is not far from any one of us, but but is the environment in which we live and move and have our being what you discover about the God who created the heavens and earth is that he is closer than you could have ever imagined. At the same time, what you discover about the God who created the heavens and earth is that he is more transcendent than you could have ever dreamed. Paul actually hints at this in the Acts passage, the one I just read. He said, the God who created the whole world is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not only the creator of the heavens and earth, the originator of everything that is the, the artist that created the, artist, the, the artistry of creation. He, by virtue of being the creator, is also the king over everything. The prophet Isaiah discovered this in Isaiah chapter 6, it says this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It was the vision he saw in the year that King Uzziah died. That's not just a, a, a convenient way to, to create a time frame. You know, no, no, we, we bought the car the same year we got married. That kind of, no, no, no. The year that King Uzziah died was a transition moment in the nation of Israel. Uzziah had been the king over the southern provinces of Judah and Benjamin for 52 years. He'd been a good king. He'd been a godly king. He'd led the people, by and large, in godly ways, and as a result, God was blessing the nation. Under King Uzziah, the, the people lived in peace and prosperity. On the global scene, the, the global superpower to the north and to the east 
which is Assyria. Uh, they were distracted and fighting wars on other borders. They ignored Israel for the time. The, the global superpower to the south and to the west, which was Egypt, was actually in decline during that period. And they left Israel alone and left to their own devices. Israel enjoyed this half century of, of abundance and peace and prosperity and stability. It was a mini golden age. And then the year came when King Uzziah died. And huge question marks began to hover over Israel's future. Who would the next king be and what would the king be like? Would be a good king like Uzziah or would he be a bad king? Would he lead us in godly ways or would he lead us in evil ways? What will happen to our nation under the new regime Canada's just finding out the answer to the question on this side of the border. America's about to find out the answer to that. All those questions are hanging in the air. On the global scene, Assyria begins to take interest in Israel again. Having put to down the other wars that they were fighting, they now turn their attention back, as does Egypt, turn their attention militarily to this vital piece of land that sits at the crossroads of all the global trade routes. And now not only is there uncertainty about the future, not only is there a fear about what's going to happen within our little country, now the drumbeat of war is being heard on the horizon. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was a year of instability and chaos and darkness and turmoil and fear. And that was the year in which Isaiah captured this vision of the God who is the creator, the one um, for whom the whole earth is filled with his glory. And what Isaiah saw was that God was not only the creator who filled the earth with his glory, he was also the king who sat high and exalted over everything, who sat on his throne, and the billows of his royal robes filled the entire temple, which, by the way, in Hebrew, the word temple is actually a loan word from neighboring languages, and it means palace. In Israel, when you go to the temple to worship, this is a very thin place because this is the place where God sits on his throne and rules over all of creation. The one who made the whole world is the Lord over heaven and earth. And it was in the midst of the, of the instability and the turmoil and the chaos of the year in which King Uzziah died that Isaiah found himself in this thin place in worship where he captured a vision of God seated on the throne and was reminded that the one who created the world, the one who spoke light into darkness, the one who spoke order into chaos, the one who spoke abundance into emptiness, the one who spoke beauty into brokenness, the one who spoke life into the midst of death was the God who was seated on the throne and who was still speaking light and order and abundance and beauty and life over those that he loved. That Isaiah and the people of Israel didn't need to fear because the God who is there, the God whose glory fills creation is the God who sits on the throne and who rules over it all. I don't know how to make sense, by the way, of the picture that the scriptures give us of a God who sits on the throne and a world that is the way that it is. We talked about this a few weeks ago. 
except to say that the Bible never tries to explain it. The Bible never tries to reconcile it, how God can be on the throne and be sovereign over everything and the world be the way that it is. It just names that as the reality. Um, that the whole earth is filled with his glory in the ways that we've talked about, that everywhere in creation you can encounter the greatness, the, the radiating goodness and love of God. And yet, the prophet Habakkuk uses that same phrase but slightly differently that reveals the tension in the scriptures. He says, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. In other words, there are places and times and seasons in the world such as it is that are not yet being filled with God's glory where the curtain is drawn and it's thick and the world lives in darkness and it seems like the radiating goodness of heaven isn't able to penetrate and Habakkuk says that is true that there are places that are not yet filled with the glory of God but it's a word of hope from Habakkuk because he says the whole world will be but one day it will be. It won't always be the way that it is because God is seated on the throne. And in between those two usages of the same phrase, there's a third occurrence in the book of Psalms. In a prayer that ends by saying, may the whole earth be filled with your glory. In between the glory of God that radiates through all creation and those spaces that do not yet radiate the goodness and the beauty of the love and the goodness of God are the people of God standing together in prayer saying, may it be, may your glory come, may the goodness, may the, may the beauty of your goodness and love radiate everywhere in the world, even where today we sit in darkness and chaos, and emptiness, and brokenness in the stench of death. May your glory fill this place. I wonder where you are this morning. I wonder what darkness lurks in your life or in the lives of those that you love. I wonder what chaos is hovering. I wonder what emptiness you're living with. I, I, I wonder what brokenness is ravaging you. I wonder what the smell of death is around you. Being anchored in the belief of the God who created the heavens and earth is to be anchored in the conviction that he is the Lord over heaven and earth, that he is the king, high and exalted, seated on the throne, whose robe fills the temple, who fills the earth with his glory, with the radiance of his goodness and love, that this is the one who is still in charge, who is still responsible over everything, and who is inviting you to seek him and to reach for him and to find him, to discover in him that he is the one who still breathes light into darkness, who still breeds order into chaos, who still breeds abundance into emptiness, who still breeds beauty into brokenness, and the one who still breeds life into the midst of death. But the God who created the heavens and earth is the king over it all. And the whole earth and your life will be filled with his glory. 2,000 years ago or so, the earliest Christians after Jesus died felt the need to begin to 
summarized for each other the core of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And they began to put some of their core convictions together into a simple document that it was eventually called the Apostles' Creed. And it begins like this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The first and foundational core belief to which we anchor ourselves for life and for hope is a belief in God, the creator, who is the Father Almighty who uses his power and authority to protect and provide for those that he loves as the creator of heaven and earth. May we be a community that lives in thin places, that learns to seek him, to look for him everywhere in creation, to reach for him and to grasp a hold of him, to encounter him as the God who is there and as the God who reigns over everything regardless of what it is that you're going through today. Let's pray together. Father, there is none like you Our story, the story of our lives, the story of our world begin before the beginning with your presence standing behind everything there is. Would you please show yourself in those thin places to us. May we discover what it means to live and to move and to have our being in your presence every moment of every day and to trust in your sovereignty, to trust in your power, to trust that you are in control of everything that happens. May this be the place that we anchor ourselves for all of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.